Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. You know, it seems to me that we have a fascination with people who do evil things, if we can use that term. But do we truly want to understand them? We spoke recently about society's fascination with serial killers, for example. We've got two stories in the news today that we just mentioned in the previous segment. This actor who staged a hate crime hoax to advance his own career. Why would somebody do that? We've got another story out of the U.S. today. A U.S. Coast Guard lieutenant, a self-identified white nationalist, was apparently close to, uh, as prosecutors say, committing acts dangerous to human life that are intended to affect governmental conduct. In other words, to target politicians and media figures for political and, and racist reasons. Why would somebody do that? How does somebody get to that point? Often asking these questions seems like we're trying to make excuses for people. But I think it is an important, as well as a fascinating question, as to what leads people to that point. Are we all capable of evil things? And what does evil even mean in the first place? We all have our own definition of it, but is it something quantifiable? Uh, Joining us to explore all of these issues, which are discussed in a new book called Evil, The Science Behind Humanity's Dark Side. Very pleased to welcome the program here today, Dr. Julia Shaw is a scientist in the Department of Psychology at University, uh, University College London, the author of the best-selling book, The Memory Illusion, someone who is focused on understanding criminal behaviors, done academic work, as well as uh, a role as an expert witness in a number of criminal cases. Dr. Julia Shaw, welcome to the program. Great to be here. Well, the book is called Evil, but uh, obviously you, know, you, you have some issue with the term. What, what do we take the word evil to mean? I think evil is something that other people are. In other words, we rarely use the term to think about ourselves. We usually use it as a term to intentionally distance ourselves, us being the good people, from them being evil people. And we sort of watch people from a distance and go, ooh, how could this person be capable of things? We might ask ourselves. But we don't really turn around and say, could I be capable of it? harmful behavior, and if so, how? And I think that's the far more interesting question is, so how we can prepare ourselves and understand ourselves better so that we act in more pro-social ways, ultimately. Right, because we can talk about evil in a philosophical sense. We probably even talk about evil in a theological sense, but, but you're doing neither of those things here. Yeah, in the book, I don't even uh, really define evil because I think it is really subjective. And I think that ultimately the label itself is intended to shut down conversation. And so I think it's really important, and that's what I try to do in the book, is to effectively talk about all the things we're not supposed to talk about. And I don't mean that in terms of, you know, breaking taboos and offending people. That's not what I mean. But I do think that everything from terrorism to pedophilia to, you know, corporate crime to cybercrime, we need to be talking about these issues head on and trying to understand how they happen rather than putting them into this sort of unknown scary category that we label evil and just uh, pretending that it can't be that we can't be part of it and that it can't affect us directly right does it does it make it easy for us to accept or easy for us to define acts when we can call them evil say that was evil that person is evil and there's our explanation okay end of story that person's evil now we understand why that happened yeah, it's lazy. I mean, it's, it's, we're, we do tend to do this as human beings, to look for a really easy answer or a really easy label rather than critically engaging with these issues, because they're hard. 
I mean, thinking about, you know, what could make someone become a terrorist is one question, but turning it around and saying what could make me potentially become a terrorist and how could I spot the signs, that's a really difficult question to even start to ask yourself. And yet that's exactly where I think we need to be in those kinds of thought experiments. And looking at science, sort of looking at the smaller pieces, you know, from daily aggression to, uh, you know, loneliness and, and human experiences that we all share. At what point do we need to be worried about our own thoughts and tendencies and, and need to take a step back and make sure that we don't become moral monsters ourselves? Right, because, look, I think people still need to be held accountable for their actions. I don't think you're suggesting otherwise. But, but I think when, when, when you start yeah. to ask the, ask the question, well, well, how does someone get to a point where they're, prepared to, to take in a, somebody's life or to, to commit multiple murders. To, to understand that question, I think to a lot of people, seems like you're trying to find an excuse for that person. Yeah, which is absolutely not what I'm trying to do. So I think that there are inexcusable behaviors, and I think that that is separate from trying to have a be- or from having a behavior that's unexplainable. I think every behavior, we should at least attempt to explain it and look for the factors that led to it. But we also need to be careful in looking for an explanation that we don't just point to one thing and say, ooh, you know, look at this, per- look at this person's brain. That's, that's where evil lies. Or things like psychopathy. Right. So blaming a diagnosis, like, like someone who is a psychopath, uh, and saying their brain is just not built for empathy and that made them an offender, that is also not good enough because it's just never that simple. And so I think what we need to do is look at all the different pieces and triangulate all the sort of different bits that can go wrong and, and try to figure each one out individually. Yeah, psychopathy is interesting because... It's, an, it's another word that I think takes on a different kind of meaning when we talk about someone who's, who's a psychopath. But the reality is that there are probably psychopaths that, that we encounter in our, our daily lives all the time. Yeah, certainly. So, I mean, most psychopaths, as far as we understand, at least, are non-offending psychopaths. Um, I actually realized just this week, being back in Canada, that my academic grandfather, as in my supervisor's supervisor, was Dr. Robert Hare, who uh, was the creator of the psychopathy checklist. Uh, So I grew up in a world where even psychologists were, if you will, hunting monsters, and they described psychopaths as monsters or snakes which I think is hugely problematic that if we assume that people can't change, that there's this fundamental broken piece about them uh, that, that makes them outliers, I think that's really problematic. And our attitudes towards psychopathy have changed dramatically. I mean, you're right. Most of us probably have met, possibly even today, a psychopath. But a lot of people who are low on empathy and don't have as good decision-making don't commit crime. And they have a lot of protective factors that make sure that they, you know, they might even be pro-social psychopaths. They might do really nice things for human beings, even though they lack empathy. So making sure that we don't also medicalize people and sort of look for labels there, uh, we need to just constantly be on our our toes. We have a fascination, though, with those monsters, as you put it, our perception that that monsters exist. I mean, serial killers are are an example of that, where many of them are are famous for all intents and purposes. Uh, and, and we do have an endless fascination with that, it seems. We do. And I think that that comes sort of as a double-edged sword. So on the one hand, I think it's bad for us potentially to, to look at sensationalized cases because the way that we see sort of serial killers, for example, or, or if you will, monsters on screen, people like that don't really exist. 
I mean, if you look at, so, so in the book I talk about the reasons that research has found for why people say they murdered somebody. And most of them are really quite banal. Like most of them, like a fight that got out of hand, someone owed someone else a small amount of money. I mean, these aren't sort of really premeditated, long-term decisions. These are heat of the moment and someone makes a really bad call and usually lives to regret it immediately thereafter. And so it, it would be hard to say that this person is fundamentally a murderer because they've only done it once and it was a slip-up. It's not to say that we should, again, not, not that we're excusing it, but it's not to try and say that this person is so fundamentally different from me because I think we can all slip up sometimes. We need to be conscious of that. Well, and, and you explore in the book, and this is interesting because I think most people would admit um, having a, a murder fantasy. Are, are, we, are we all capable of murder? I think when I do talks around this topic, I find it fascinating to see that when I say, you know, close your eyes, uh, raise your hand for anyone who's had a murder fantasy before. Um, people, hands just jump up before I've even defined what it is. Oh, really? It's <laughs> really quite an interesting phenomenon that if you look at studies on this, uh, in samples where the individuals have been asked in various ways, you know, who they've fantasized about murdering, uh, more than half of participants generally say they've had a fantasy about killing a boss, maybe uh, murdering a stranger on the train, maybe murdering a step-parent. Um, why is a good question, and should we, should we be worried? And probably having murder fantasies, because it's so normal, it isn't necessarily in itself a bad sign, because evolutionary psychologists argue that perhaps the ability to have this thought experiment of what would it be like if I actually went through with it can also help us make better decisions to not go through with it. So in effort, in effect, if you go through it in your mind, right, you can see, hey, these are consequences I really don't want, and I really don't want to engage in this. And it might, in some ways, be protective. But the notion, though, even that, you know, maybe someone's murder fantasy is, uh, you know, killing Hitler, for example, that, that doing something evil to somebody who's evil is, is therefore good, or at least, you know, that, that's how, how we would rationalize that. I mean, the, the classic thought experiment of would you go back in time and kill baby Hitler, I right. think is also a, a, a fascinating one in terms of, and I do it in the book, and I also reconstruct a hypothetical Hitler brain. So what would it look like? And if I had a picture of Hitler's brain, could I pr- possibly tell the difference between his brain and your brain? And effectively, the answer is probably not. I mean, probably there wasn't, as far as we could tell, anything so different about him besides his, uh, I mean, in terms of his behavior, of course, he was dramatically different than uh, pretty much anyone in history, but he wasn't so fundamentally different in his brain, as far as we could tell. Um, would you go back in time? Would you go back in time and kill Baby Hiller? What do you think? <laughs> um, maybe moody teenage Hitler. <laughs> moody, not baby. So killing baby is not okay, even if it's Hitler. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's an interesting thought experiment because you're killing a baby. The baby hasn't done anything yet, um, even though we know through the historical record what that, that baby eventually becomes. But was was that baby destined to be that? Because perhaps you could just, instead of killing the baby, uh, take the baby home and, and raise it differently, yeah, for example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I, I think I think the the innate answer that you have to this question is, tells me a lot about whether you think people are born evil or whether they are socialized or grow into quote evil. Um, and of course, the answer is it's neither. It's obviously a mix. But mm-hmm. I still think it's a fun way to start a nature versus nurture conversation. Um, and and yeah, helps helps us think about the complexities of what it means to 
Right. Well, that, yeah, and that is a question. Well. So if we take Hitler as the example, if, if we're going to argue that evil exists, then clearly there's, there's your classic example right there that it doesn't get much worse than him. If, if our time-traveling machine allows us to go back, we could bring that, that baby Hitler to 2019, find a, a great, stable home, loving parents for baby Hitler. <laughs> Maybe he's not going to commit genocide, but is he going to you know, rob a liquor store? I mean, is, is, are, are some people destined to, to do bad things? I don't think anyone is destined to do bad things. I think I'm not that determinist in how I see the world. I also think it's a it's a harmful viewpoint to have, this idea that some people could be sort of born broken. Um, and we need to be really careful that we also assume that people can't change because I think everybody can. Uh, and, and especially people like Hitler. I mean, he was, in a, he was at a time when eugenics was a widely spread idea. It, it, this wasn't, it wasn't like, it wasn't Hitler who came up with this idea. He just sort of synthesized lots of really hateful ideas into one and then rallied people uh, against, against, well, huge numbers of, of innocent parts of the population. So it, it, it's, it's not even that he was that creative. He was just really, in a negative way, efficient at synthesizing all the ideas that were a part of the time. So we also don't know if, you know, if Hitler didn't exist, maybe someone else would have. Mm-hmm. That's something similar. We just, we, we have no idea. Um, but I still think, again, taking it back to us as individuals, I think exploring our own morality and doing thought experiments, you know, how do I actually feel about these things? And these, if you will, so some of the most important issues that humanity wrestles with, I think we can all benefit from having a health check for our morality. And that's definitely what I'm trying to do with evil, as I want everybody to go back and say, how do I feel about these things? And what can I learn about myself? And how can I fight these possibly dark sides that lurk inside all of us right and and part of the book then is you know getting into the science of all of that but it, you know, there, there is a takeaway here that you you want people to rethink evil or even really to stop using the term i mean once we have a better understanding all of of all of this what, what do you hope changes i hope that we stop calling people evil and instead trying to have you know the, the difficult conversations but also the interesting conversations around why people do harmful things and how we can prevent them from happening and ultimately the biggest call of all i think in my book is that we remember that no matter who we're talking about no matter what they've done in their lives they're still human beings and that we must never dehumanize others because then we're capable of real atrocity i think so we need to remember people's humanity no matter what the current circumstances we live in are because otherwise we're capable of, of harm Well, the book is called Evil, The Science Behind Humanity's Dark Side. Dr. Julia Shaw, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.